Welcome to Brainwaves, student research on air. This podcast series is a collaboration between CKUT and the Postgraduate Student Society of McGill University. We are here to feature student research of all disciplines in Montreal and make academic work more broadly understood and accessible. Today on Brainwaves, we feature an interview with Caroline Seiler, who is a PhD student in the Earth and Planetary Sciences Department at McGill University. She will speak to us about Cascadia, a fault zone on the West Coast, and her research about clay formations that could predict such earthquakes. Can you introduce yourself and your program of study? Hi, uh, I'm Caroline. I'm a second year PhD student in the Earth and Planetary Sciences Department at McGill. I generally study earthquakes and subduction zones and how tectonic plate motion is accommodated in these types of convergent boundaries. So maybe jumping back a little bit, we can talk about the basic science and what the social impact of all of what you just said are. I feel like currently we hear a lot about the Cascadia Faults and the San Andreas Faults in the media, and I grew up on the West Coast, so it was even more prominent. In July 2015, the New Yorker published an article called The Really Big One, An Earthquake Will Destroy a Sizable Portion of the Northwest. The question is when. Can you explain a little bit about the faults on the West Coast and summarize for us this article? Sure. So uh, the two that you already mentioned are the main tectonic plate boundary faults in the West Coast. So the San Andreas Fault, which is running from all the way down in Mexico through Los Angeles area, through the San Francisco area, and then somewhere in Northern California around Mendocino, there's a the fault transitions from being a transform fault where plate motion is accommodated relatively like it's a vertical fault so the two blocks kind of slide past each other if you want to think about north america and the ocean on the other side they kind of are just sliding past each other whereas north of mendocino you have the cascadia subduction zone where cascadia itself is the oceanic plate is subducting beneath north america so those two faults are the two biggest hazard-creating structures in the West Coast. And so, like you mentioned, the San Andreas experiences earthquakes more or less frequently, usually smaller ones, that don't cause that much ground shaking. I think the worst one in recent history is the 1906 earthquake in San Francisco, which the article mentions that killed, I mean, thousands of casualties, billion dollars of damage. And uh, the funny thing the article talks about is Cascadia hasn't experienced any great earthquakes even close to that kind of magnitude in like our recent memory. The funny story is how the earthquake potential of the Cascadia subduction zone was really discovered, which is what the New Yorker article focuses on, where it talks to scientists in the 1970s, started to realize that they could see evidence for previous earthquake activity in Cascadia based on uh, so there's kind of two methods that these guys in the 70s were looking at, which was you can see uh, when an earthquake happens, so you're, you've built up a lot of energy at that margin because the tectonic plates are being driven towards each other. So 
when there's no motion accommodated, you're just building up elastic energy, which is just, uh, I don't know necessarily how to refer to it here, but you can think of it almost like a spring. Like if you stretch a spring and it's attached to a block, like you can, there's a certain amount that you can stretch that string before uh, the block itself will move. Like if you're pulling a block with a spring and when that spring finally goes and the block slides, like that type of motion is what will happen if Cascadia experiences an earthquake. In this case, the North American continent will lurch towards the west and subside substantially, like fall, like the coast will fall. Something like six feet, I think, is what that article outlines, which is pretty substantial and would cause, they've done economic studies about what would the impact of a large magnitude earthquake be in Cascadia, and it's the same. It's like billions of dollars of damage and thousands of casualties, which is pretty extreme. And so back to how they discovered these events is that they started noticing there are forests in, I think, Oregon, where you have tons and tons of dead trees that all died in the same year based on, like, they could date the tree rings and see that they all died in the summer of 1699 and how is when that earthquake happened and the coast fell they were suddenly submerged in seawater and like straight up died and that's so they can like that's one way to date that previous earthquake event that there's no written record of in North America and funnily enough too so you can have some of these large magnitude earthquakes if they rupture all the way to the surface so in this case the surface is like the trench that exists uh, between those two plates so if you've heard of like the marianas trench is where the philippine plate is subducting beneath indonesia i think or probably the philippines actually it's just a place where that fault reaches this, the earth's surface and if it ruptures all that way you end up moving that water column that sits on top of that plate and that's how you generate a tsunami right because you're just giving a big pulse of movement into the that ocean column and it'll cr create a tsunami that will flow towards the coast. So the other way that I can date these earthquakes in the past are based on like tsunami deposits. This is a lot of detail <laughs> and I'm trying to figure out like how to come back and answer your question which is what are the faults in the west coast? So yeah the Cascadia subduction zone is a big one. And only recently have we realized that it has this ginormous earthquake potential, even though day to day it doesn't, we don't feel experience a lot of earthquakes from it. So what that article talks about is that given these events in the recent past, it's very likely that one will happen in the future. And with just with statistics, they've come up with this number that in the next 50 years, there's a chance one in three that will experience a magnitude eight. And I think a chance one in 10 that will experience a magnitude nine which is like, I think the largest ever recorded would be like a magnitude 9.2 or 9.6 or something like that. So it would be, a, it would definitely be the really big one. That title is no joke. What area would it cover specifically? So the Cascadia subduction zone itself goes from that, that point in Northern California up the coast of BC, uh, 1100 kilometers. Okay. So to have that largest magnitude earthquake, the, that entire margin would have to rupture. And so in terms of the inland extent, I mean, I don't know numbers, but I can tell you that Seattle would definitely be affected. Vancouver would be affected. Like the cities on the coast are definitely in range, the damage range. San Francisco as well? San Francisco, I think because it's farther south, that would be affected by the San Andreas fault rupturing, but not the Cascadia subduction zone. But that would be my guess. I couldn't tell you for sure.
And you were saying earlier, like, literally a part of that land would disappear. Yeah, Um, well, it would move, for sure. And you would submerge part of that coastline underwater, like, because the level of the coast would, would change. And it's what we refer to as subsidence. And so they can see in the past that this has happened over and over again. Like, I think they can see maybe six or ten previous earthquakes based on buried swamps. So where, like, that swampland was at a certain elevation, and when the earthquake happened, it dropped, like, a certain number of feet and gets buried. Can you go over a little bit the basic science of how earthquakes happen and come to be? Sure. So plate tectonics is the general overarching theory of how there's all these plates that are kind of sitting on top of the Earth's surface, and they move relative to one another. And at the boundaries between those faults, they're either converging into each other, like Cascadia, they're moving next to each other side by side, like in San Andreas, or they're moving apart. There's not a great example of that type of margin in North America, but uh, there's rift margins in East Africa as an example. But at those margins, that relative plate motion in the brittle upper layer of the Earth is accommodated mostly by like stick slip, which is how we talk about earthquakes. So in terms of you're pushing these two plates relatively by each other. So in the case of San Francisco, like one's moving roughly north and one's moving roughly south, right? Relatively. And trying to accommodate that motion, the fault is stuck or locked for a period of time where far away those plates are moving relative to one another but at the fault itself there's no motion but you're just accumulating energy and accumulating energy until you overcome a certain failure threshold and the fault fails it ruptures earthquakes and that has that energy that it's accumulated is all released in one fault displacement and so that's like the way that stick slip earthquake behavior is kind of thought about how did they find out at it that it's going to be in the next 50 years, and it's a one in three chance. So statistics are not my strong suit. So okay. probability-wise, I'm not sure. But the reason they can get a recurrence interval, so that's what we call like the number of years between earthquakes. So if they can have a set of dates and a set of earthquakes, you can kind of do like an average. What's the time? What's the average time between earthquakes? And you'll get the number for Cascadia, which is 243 years. And since the last event was already in 1700 AD, it's already been 317 years. So we're kind of, quote, overdue. And so I think from that information, they can pull out a statistic, but I'm not sure how. But if it goes beyond, like, let's say in 50 years, it doesn't happen, does the likelihood increase? Yeah, I think the likelihood would only continue to increase oh, into okay. the future. I, I'm not sure that we would ever see a, a decrease. I think okay. you'd have to go, I mean, I'm sure the longer we wait, that backwards number for that recurrence interval is influenced, right? Because if we don't have an earthquake for another 400 years, then the average recurrence interval will have increased and then the probability will have changed. And so in that way, it will change, but it's not that... If one doesn't happen, that means it's less and less likely to happen in the future. It's still always going to happen because Cascadia will always need to accommodate that plate motion between the North American plate and the Juan de Fuca plate. You are listening to Brainwaves, student research on air. 
Head to the website culture.ckut.ca slash brainwaves to listen to other podcasts in the series or to learn more about having your own research featured. If you are enjoying this podcast, consider checking out All Things McGill from 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. on Monday on CKUT 90.3 FM on the dial or www.ckut.ca online. What is your research in relation to all of this? So my research gets way farther into the the nitty-gritty of like Cascadia hazard and earthquake science and subduction zone dynamics, like the big umbrella, I, I dive way down into that column. So I conduct experiments on clays and like gouges, gouges just being a term for the like fine grain, clay rich, often clay rich material that you find within a fault um, that we have recovered from ocean drill core from like the ocean plates. So on an ocean plate on the ocean bottom, there's a ton of, there's a layer of like sediment. And I take those sediments, which you would find at the Cascadia subduction zone, and conduct experiments to see what is their strength, like how much stress would it take to make them fail, and what's their friction. So if you talk about faults, like the friction on the fault will control how much energy it needs to fail. And I also will measure in response to a change in velocity at that boundary. Does this fault get stronger or weaker? And if it gets weaker, that means it's prone to nucleating earthquakes. Or having an earthquake that nucleated somewhere else propagate through that section of the fault. So in terms of how this applies to Cascadia, if you have a large magnitude earthquake, it will not nucleate at the surface by any means. There's ton of different reasons why, but the main reason being the behavior of the fault that shallow is not unstable. You need an unstable behavior to nucleate an earthquake in that stick-slip way. But so if you have an earthquake nucleate somewhere else and it propagates upward towards the surface at the surface, like whether or not it will be able to rupture all the way to the surface is kind of my question. Because normally clays especially are very weak and so it's hard to it's hard to have unstable behavior in a very weak material. So normally you think of the like most shallow part of subduction zone where it's dominated by clays as being stable and not you won't see an earthquake r- rupture in that portion. However, in 2011 there was a huge earthquake in Japan that ruptured all the way to the trench. And so that was kind of a surprise to some people. And the idea that came out of that was that if that clay material is actually able to like host co-seismic slip, so slip during an earthquake, then you can have rupture that will go all the way to the trench. And if that happens, then you generate a tsunami and that increases the hazard of the Cascadia boundary. So you have like seismic hazard maps and tsunami hazard maps. And if you can have a tsunami, your hazard goes way up. And for Cascadia specifically. Um, based on all of your research, are there any findings so far about the predictability of it all? So I've only just begun doing experiments, but what we've seen so far is, is that the clays are behaving as clays. They're weak and they would not be able to host an earthquake. But 
what we are also changing in our experiments is if you increase the, the water that's held within a sample and you increase what we call the pore pressure, so it's the pressure that the water in each individual pore within the clay sample itself, it inhibits earthquake nucleation, but it uh, makes the fault even weaker and then... Or hold on, let me try to explain this again, actually, because it's hard to answer that question. Because in truth, I don't have that many findings yet, because I'm just getting started. But we are seeing that the clays are behaving as clays, in which that they are weak, and they are possibly, possibly would be able to allow an earthquake to propagate through them, which would mean dangerous things for Cascadia. How did you first become interested in this research? So I, during my undergrad, I was a geology major, and I always thought that like earthquakes were totally the most dramatic thing that we can learn about in our undergrad. And within that, too, I was always interested in how rocks, which you like grow up around, I mean, like pebbles and whatnot, but in my brain, it now is more like entire landforms but how can how can those rocks break and squish and squeeze and fold like if you've ever been uh, out around Quebec that we're within a very old mountain belt and there's the most crazy rock formations out there of just folds and like rocks looking like they just were liquid which is not true but they look like that and that that aspect of geology was so fascinating to me it was how rocks something that like you hold in your hand, it's so hard and stiff and boring and brittle, can just flow like jelly. And so that's really what got me interested in in deformation and then within that field, earthquakes. Uh, So for your project, are you going to be doing field work on the West Coast? So I have a second PhD project. So I have this set of experiments on clay, but I also do field work on Vancouver Island on an uh, exhumed, like, what they, what we would say is an ancient play boundary fault there. And so I go, I'm going for a month this summer, and I've been for a time beforehand. But um, the funny thing about Vancouver Island is also that it plays such a huge role in the discovery of this, like, 1700 event, because uh, if you, if you also go into the oral history of the indigenous peoples of like the Pacific Northwest, they also have stories of this catastrophic uh, disaster that all also date back to the same 1700 AD earthquake that matches up with the data, the geologic data that they can find in other places. And it's these horrifying stories about how they uh, found canoes in trees that were probably put there by tsunami waves and how the entire coastline of Vancouver Island changed as the coast subsided and the people who lived there drowned, more or less. Like the, That's the way the stories go, is that when the coastline just fell and people were wiped out, more or less, which is pretty horrifying and totally matches up horrifyingly with the geologic data that exists for that 1700 earthquake so it's quite scary what can really happen i think not to terrify all of your listeners but i mean it's i think it's scary because people didn't know about it until right yeah it was i mean more or less a mystery because 
Cascadia is part of that. Have you ever heard of like the ring of fire, right? Cascadia mm-hmm. sits on the ring of fire and yet it's so quiet. And like that really scares people who know earthquakes because that means it's not releasing any of its energy. It's just building up energy every year that goes by. Wow. Do you feel that with the research and knowledge gained from, you know, looking at the clay in the ocean, um, is there anything people can do with that knowledge? I, th- I mean, the best response for the West Coast right now is to prepare itself for a large magnitude seismic event in the way that Japan has done, where they put into place early warning systems based on like any slight feelings of shaking within the Japan like country. I don't know. I was going to call it an island, but it's several islands, so that doesn't really work. But yeah, so early warning systems are super important. Being able to like earthquake-proof buildings, so... There's certain ways of constructing foundations that you can retrofit to buildings that already exist and then build new buildings with certain like earthquake codes. And because until the 1970s or 80s, people really didn't know that that was possible, much of the West Coast is just not prepared, especially the Pacific Northwest. So I'd say like in terms of what people can do, that's something you can definitely do. Do you know if people are already putting some of those preparation strategies to place? I mean, I don't, I I have not spoken with, like, the mayor of Seattle or anything, but I can't imagine that it's not happening. I'm sure it's happening, but I know it's also, it can be expensive to retrofit, especially your own home and your private home, and that's not the government's responsibility, so I hope maybe there would be some subsidized funding for that type of preparation, but I really, I couldn't tell you. Right. In Japan, like, they they have specific warning, um, like you were saying, like, warning signals, Um how do you how do you do that? <laughs> so Japan, because earthquakes happen so often and uh, they ha- have clearly seen the damaging effects of not being prepared, they have a they've implemented a pretty dense seismic array, which means they take seismometers, which are how we monitor earthquake waves, so seismic waves, and they just put seismometers everywhere in this grid all over the country. And so from that, you can if if an earthquake pat wave passes through a region in which there's a seismometer, that seismometer will, will record that wave. And it's almost like an automatic system in which if a bunch of seismometers suddenly see a wave, like they'll send out a warning, warning signal and they'll do things like stop subway trains. It's just so the little things that you can do in that three-second warning window that you have that can save lives. In your own field, um, is there... A relationship between like the scientists and let's say like the policymakers or politicians on the west coast i'm sure there's some especially between the government organizations that study the cascadia so the the usgs and the canadian there's the pacific geoscience network which is a canadian agency that studies the cascadia subduction zone almost like to the death, like so much research comes out of those two organizations and they definitely communicate with government, but I don't, I personally don't know to what extent. Is there anything else you would like to add about your research? (laughs) I definitely hope that we'll find results that can help us prepare. Uh, I think at this point, it's definitely important that we, that we do prepare the Pacific Northwest for what's almost, you know, it's, uh, it's probably over the top to say that this is inevitable, that a giant earthquake will happen and Cascadia will be screwed. Like, that's 
that's an exaggeration, but it's also part in part truth. And so mm-hmm. I hope that by conducting this research, I can help push in that direction that for preparedness. You just listened to Brainwaves, student research on air. Head to the website culture.ckut.ca slash brainwaves to listen to other podcasts in the series or to learn more about having your own research featured. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider checking out All Things McGill from 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. on CKUT 90.3 FM on the dial or www.ckut.ca online. CKUT is McGill's campus community radio station that provides alternative music, news, and spoken word programming to the city of Montreal and surrounding areas, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year.